welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Good morning, guys. Or actually, good afternoon. I'm Alan Z. I'm a sexaholic. Welcome to the first inaugural Atlanta Area Essay Intergroup quarterly speakers meeting. Um, I want to um, have some thanks to make. Uh, a lot of folks uh, put this together, but before we, we do that, I think uh, I'd like to ask Steve M. to uh, read the essay purpose. Hey guys, I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. The essay purpose, Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership. We are, not, we are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. Thanks, Steve. And I've asked uh, David W. to read the sobriety definition. I'm David. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, everybody. Uh, let me read this one. Okay. Tradition 3 states that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. Given this requirement, one might think that sexual sobriety would be a relative matter that we define for ourselves. On the surface, this might appear to be an attractive and democratic idea. We think not. Our rationalizations are ingenious. We tried masturbation only or having meaningful relationships only or having affairs where we truly cared for the other person or resorted only to one-nighters, prostitutes, or anonymous sex, so nobody got hurt. Over the long haul, these forms of experimentation did not work for us. There was no real recovery. Sobriety works for us. How can we consider ourselves sober if we are still resorting to whatever or whomever we are using addictively? With most of us coming in, there was never any doubt about what we had to stop doing. We knew. However, if we come into an essay group where we can define our own sobriety, watch those rationalizations come alive. And if we define our own level of sobriety, that's all we're likely to reach. In defining sobriety, we do not speak for those outside Sexaholics Anonymous. We can only speak for ourselves. Thus, for the married sexaholic, sexual sobriety means having no form of sex with self or with partner, persons other than the spouse. For the unmarried sexaholic, sexual sobriety means freedom from sex of any kind. And for all of us, single and married alike, sexual sobriety includes progressive victory over lust. 
Of course, we recognize that we can that one can be sexually dry but not sober from lust or dependency. The dry drunk syndrome discovered in AA applies to us as well. Single or married, but we have tried to avoid passing judgment on the quality of another's inner sobriety. That must come from the individual. And if such persons keep coming back, the fact of whether or not they are living free from the power of sexual lust, fantasy, or dependency, not to mention switching addictions, usually becomes apparent. This aspect of recovery seems to be progressive. Thus, our essay expression, true sobriety, includes progressive victory over lust. But progress we must, or recovery eludes us. The real problem for all of us, single, married, man, woman, from whatever lifestyle, is one and the same, the spiritual misconnection. We have found that more important than the mere length of our calendar sobriety is its quality and our personal integrity. Physical sobriety is not an end in itself, but a means towards an end. Victory over the obsession and progress in recovery. We are often the only ones who know on the inside of our souls whether we are truly sober in recovery. It, all, it is also possible we can be fooling ourselves. Better to acknowledge where we really are than hide behind the badge of our sobriety date, cheat ourselves, and threaten our union with another. The fact that marrieds can have sex with their spouse and call themselves sober is no advantage at all. It can even work against recovery. Some marrieds... It, confess that even though they aren't acting out anymore, victory over lust still eludes them. As a matter of fact, it often seems harder for married to get marrieds to get victory over lust and dependencies unless they go through the experience of total sexual abstinence. And more often than we might suppose, marrieds can be heard complaining that singles have it easier. Let's face it, sexaholics, recovering or not, singled or married, can expect to have problems with sex. Not to mention the host of other problems entailed in trying to live with the and, and relate to others. What we strive towards is not only negative sobriety of not acting out our sexaholism, but progressive victory over the obsession in looking and thinking. We also strive toward the positive sobriety and acting out true union of, of persons. The great blessing or curse, as the case may be, of our condition is that unless and until we can give unconditionally and relate with others the vacuum left inside us from withdrawal will never be filled all along we had the thought we could make the connection by taking we see now that we get it by giving our whole concept of sex begins to change sex finds a simple and natural place it could never have been have before and becomes merely one of the things that flow from true union and committed marriage and even here We've discovered that sex is, an, is optional. Unity and fellowship and spiritual quality in meetings are supported by this definition. Without defining sexual sobriety, we would make it possible for those who are still practicing lust in some fashion to lead meetings and hold policy-making positions, affecting not only the group but SA as a whole. This could also compromise the spiritual atmosphere so that the power of God's presence would not be active in meetings and fellowship. While groups may stay together without a commitment to sobriety, just as individuals may temporarily feel better without it, we have found that there is no true spiritual unity in groups without a shared commitment to sobriety and progress in recovery.
Personal recovery depends upon SA unity, tradition one. Sobriety and victory over lust are the basis of our unity and common welfare, which must come first. Our sobriety is the sai qua non, the necessary basis of our recovery and fellowship. Without experiencing it, we have nothing. For us, sobriety works. We live and let live, but we do not call one another sober unless we are practicing sobriety. Okay, um, I want to thank quite a few people who helped uh, bring this together today. Um, if I try to start naming people's names, I'm going to forget somebody. Um, but somebody handled the refreshments and the drinks. Some <laughs> somebody's taking care of the sound. And uh, thanks to whoever secured the church for us. And um, just uh, this is really uh, this is the fellowship in action. So I'm really grateful. Um, for uh, for all of you guys who helped put this together today. Um, this is being recorded. Uh, this microphone is not broadcasting, obviously, so uh, we are taping this. Um, we'll be taping all the sessions today. Um, we have these chairs set up for there's going to be two of the sessions where Harvey's going to invite people to share, and um, we, we invite you to kind of queue up. If, if you want to share, and this microphone will be either in the stand here, you can you can hold it. Um, so if you don't want to be taped, um, I guess don't share. <laughs> um, cell phones off, please, if you haven't done that already. Um, and let's see other announcements. I was supposed I'm supposed to ask how many by a show of hands, how many folks are going to be staying for the couples session. Okay, uh, all my helpers out there, did I forget any other questions? Steve, this, was, did I ask the question I was supposed to ask? Okay. Um, well, about a month ago, I got a call from a guy. I was out of town, and he said, hey, you've got a great service opportunity. He says, we're doing a workshop, and you're running it. Uh, and um, I, I, I missed an intergroup meeting about a month and a half ago. And I got uh, I got nominated to be the chair of the speaker meeting, these speaker meetings. And so thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Uh, but the guy that called me and the guy who really, uh, I think, had the inertia behind getting Harvey here today uh, is Dave S. And Dave, I'd like you to introduce uh, our speaker and our workshop leader. Watch your head. Thanks, Alan. I'm Dave. I'm a sexaholic. Yay. Grateful to be 175 days sober today. Very grateful. Harvey would want me to put this in the past tense, so I will. I was the perennial SA loser, the guy who could not stay sober in SA. And uh, so I am truly very grateful for every day, every hour, every minute of this 175 days. About six months ago, I raised my hand in this room on Saturday morning in desperation and said, I need to find a sponsor who understands lust recovery and freedom from lust. I need help. And uh, Steve G came up to me afterwards and uh, he didn't say, yes, clearly you desperately need help. What he said was, here's a list of people you can call. And he gave me a list of eight names and numbers, uh, five of whom were, were uh, outside of Atlanta. Well, I called them all. And uh, when I got a hold of Harvey, Harvey said, you are very toxic. 
you need to try to stay lust free and call me back in two hours. So I did. I called him back in two hours and he took the next call and we talked and we kept talking. And uh, it's been a rocky road since then. I didn't stay sober. I had a relapse. Uh, first time I met Harvey in person was at the International Convention in Orange County. And uh, I was very, very on edge. I had a couple of days sober. I was a mess. Um, everybody, I've, it felt to me like every speaker there told stories about Harvey. Some of them did it anonymously. They didn't say who they were talking about. But there was so much to share about Harvey. I attended one of the meetings he led. But Harvey and I have had a, a rocky road. At least one of us is out of his mind and really difficult to deal with. And y'all can figure out who, <laughs> who that is. <laughs> so uh, we were recently on a hiatus. One of us had fired, had fired the other one. And, uh, but I kept calling him, kept talking to him, invited him to come speak at the Thursday meeting. Created a real transformation in that Thursday Midtown meeting. Um, that meeting has just not been the same since then. And we spawned a couple of meetings, new meetings from the people that were there. And I kept calling Harvey and talking to him about lust recovery and some of the confusion about lust in the rooms. And Harvey said, well, you should do a workshop about, about lust in Atlanta. And I said, you're right, we should, and you should facilitate it. So <laughs> please welcome Harvey A. Hi, I'm Harvey A., a sexaholic. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and it's joy for me to be here because Atlanta, for the past 25 years, had struggled. And I can't tell you how many hours my life went to dealing with trying to help Atlanta and it never could get going it would go up and down up and down the few and then this and that and <clears throat> by the way when I said 25 years at least my sobriety date is a, a March 8th 1984 and to put that in context context by the way when I came in we did not have a big book we did not have the essay book and I was reviewing in the preface today how Roy wrote about that time you know what we think is the essay book was just loose papers it's loose papers that he'd send to these little groups that had popped over the country. A few groups here and there in Nashville. We started by this guy and, and another guy came and I was number three and number two vanished. And n number one after six months, who was my uh, sponsor, decided to um, go out and lust a little. And it ended up doing a lust murder and cut this woman's heart out who he was doing obscene phone calls with and uh, that's my introduction to essay okay. and no matter what I've lived 
over the past 27 years with the concept that I've been taught in AA over the years. I don't have to act out today if my ass falls off. For today. There are no excuses today. Can't guarantee you tomorrow. But for today, I don't have to act out if my ass falls off. <clears throat> and if that is the motto in Nashville, that's our motto. That we don't have to act out if our ass falls off. By the way, over the course of this workshop, we're going to try to keep things that simple. You can't be too dumb to get this program, but you sure could be too smart to get it. You know? And the more simplistic we get it, the more I could get it. My sponsor used to say, that if you go to clubhouses, AA clubhouses all over the world, you will see the great truths of the world written in simple enough terms that even an alcoholic or a sexaholic can get it. Okay. So we're going to try to keep it simple. And in Atlanta, it had its struggles to keep it simple. And one day... Finally, I suggested that they just have an all-men's meeting. And for whatever reason, just having an all-men's meeting for a while got a core going. And it continued. And then I show up here for three weeks this year. And God, you got such a program that I got jealous this week because... Thank God he's cured me of competitiveness. <laughs> I mean, he has cured me. So what do I do every quarter when I get the essay? I see which group gives the most money. <laughs> and Nashville is usually always number one, or at least number two. You guys beat Nashville this quarter. You guys gave close to about two grand for this time and we only gave about 1900 <laughs> spoiled again how do you like that but as you'll hear I'm better than I used to be just not as well as I'm going to get and so <clears throat> it was a joy when I was here a few months ago to see the amount of people at a meeting and the meetings and as you know I felt you guys were really ready to start increasing meetings not that I'm comparing or anything but Nashville has about 43 meetings a week so if you start feeling comfortable at 7 or 8 get over it and why because my God today is a God of love. And a God of love is a God of abundance. You don't take from one to give to another. There's there enough for everybody. And you keep growing your meetings until you see... You don't need another meeting. 
And I was comparing it to guys if you weight lift. You do a certain weight, but as soon as you get 12, 15 reps, man, you're ready for a bigger weight. Or what's going to happen? You're not going to grow. You might just stay there, look okay, but not going to grow. <clears throat> so what happened about six months ago is I got this call from this guy called Dave S., who I feel God has touched. Uh, if not touched, he's touched me by <laughs> working with Dave sometimes. <laughs> he puts me through it. I have grown more sponsoring Dave over the past six months than I think I have grown in any way. This Dave's one of these people I think has been touched by God. He gets inspiration. And for me to work with those inspirations and yet use the concept my sponsor taught me of where the program is in moderation. That it's not black and it's not white. It lives in gray. And so a lot of the things Dave and I do is how to get so much of what God touches him with these inspirations into a moderation that can be handled on one day at a time. But I'm using Dave as an example of this. First of all, we need to thank him for today. That this is I had no choice but to show up, let me tell you. <laughs> Dave would have called me three times a day if he needed to. And, um, but Dave is the example that I'm going to lead off my, this whole concept of lust about. But if we believe that we are created in God's image, if we truly believe it, what are we believing that image is? And what is one of those qualities? And what of, one of the qualities of being created in his image, in my belief, is that he creates. It creates. And therefore, if I'm in his image, I can create. And how does... It worked to create. You get an idea, hopefully that God has planted in, sometimes not. I won't do the two comparisons. You get an idea. You hook it with an emotion. You repeat it over and over again. And it becomes reality. So when we see these beautiful skyscrapers down the street, that is not a building. That is an idea in someone's head. The architect's idea. And he worked it and wined it and dined it. And then it became real. And that's what Dave did about this workshop. 
Dave's idea about it, he just doesn't realize it yet, came over six months ago when he cross-examined the heck out of me about my ideas on lust. Because he was determined that lust was his problem. Not sexually acting out, lust. And he cross-examined me and this and that, and we went over this and went over that, and um, fought each other tooth and nail on lots of things. But that germ of an idea that he connected with an emotion worked and worked until this was created, this workshop. This is the result of a God-given idea that Dave got. Now, let's talk about lust. Same dynamics. <clears throat> I would get a sexual fantasy. I would work it and nurse it and play it over and over and get a connected feeling a lot of times which went not only to my heart for those people who are listening I'm pointing to my heart when I say a feeling I would get a sexual feeling a sexual idea eventually that feeling was also manifested in my pelvis with an erection you get a mental image an emotional feeling in your chest, an erection in combination, and no matter what, you will create whatever that fantasy was. You will create it because we have been given that instinct, that ability to create. And by the way, if you don't think this is all interconnected with being created in God's image, when are we, at what moment in time, are we exactly like God? At the moment we're with our wife, who's of ability to be impregnated, the moment of the orgasm. We are one with God because we could create another human being. The most important, beautiful moment in time where we truly are connected by being able to create life for most people, if it's not a biological situation. It's that moment that gets distorted into a non-glorified issue. And that's where lust comes in. A natural instinct 
that is being used for unnatural purposes. Uh, let's see how Roy actually says it. Hey, can I show you off my new iPad? <laughs> let's see. Um, Roy calls it lust. He says it in a few ways. Lust is an attitude demanding that a natural instinct serve unnatural purposes. A natural instinct, meaning life would not go on without sex. Natural instinct. Well, what does he say? He doesn't say it's a natural instinct that's gone haywire. It's the, an attitude, an attitude demanding a natural instinct be used for unnatural purposes. An attitude. Me, Dave gets used to hearing me use the word motive. What is your motive? To me, motive and attitude are very interconnected. What is my attitude about lust? We are not allergic to sex. The first step explicitly says we are powerless over lust. It has nothing to do with sex. Roy goes on, if you read, Roy says lust isn't even physical. And I know he's right. Because I know somebody who had an operation and could not have erections anymore. And ended up losing his sobriety. We are not powerless over sex. It doesn't say it. I don't know where people get it from. By the way, over the past decade, I guess, or less, I've had a, uh, a mission. I didn't realize what it was till over the years. My mission was to cut this shit out that we do in this program. We don't talk about the topics that are the main topics to talk about. We talk around them. And I have spent, over the past few years, I have written out three articles for the essay, and they were articles you never talk about. You're not supposed to talk about. One is, what is sex with self? I can't tell you when that article was written, how it shook things up. I was getting calls from all over. What do you mean by that? What do you mean this or that? And maybe over the course of the workshop, we'll get to some of what is sex with self concept. The other topic we never talk about basically, is what we mean about lust. And that was in another article that I wrote soon after Roy died because I was afraid with him dying 
this whole concept of lust would be lost. Because we are so preoccupied with talking about sexually acting out. I could scream sometimes at meetings. People actually think their relapse was when they masturbated. They actually believe it. Or when they went to the topless bar. Or when they went and called up a hooker. They actually believe that's when they relapsed. The fact that they had been lusting for months or years has no connection with that. Because you don't end up masturbating without lusting. Lusting is the drink. Once you're into lust, it's only a matter of time that you're going to physically act out. And if not, you're going to be in self-imposed waterboarding. (laughs) I said on, uh, when I was talking at the afternoon meeting once, I said, If there's anything worse than waterboarding, to me, it would be sitting in front of internet watching pornography with a significant erection and not being able to have an orgasm. What could be worse than that? And that's what guys do all the time. You talk about the old term of masturbation being self-abuse. If that ain't self-abuse, what is It's torture. And then the guys continue to get crazed from all this. Go around drunk. But no, I didn't have an orgasm. I'm sober as can be. And that's a lot of the attitude about lust itself. Oh yeah, it's okay. I saw this beautiful gal so... I played with it in my head for the rest of the day and next day. But I didn't masturbate. You know, Jess, my old essay sponsor, used to say the difference between a sex addict and non-sex addict. These three guys, buddies, were walking down the street and two of them were not sex addicts and one was. And this gorgeous gal walks by and this one the non-sex addict says to the other non-sex addict man wasn't she gorgeous boy would I like to have her in bed wow this was something else and they're going on and on talking about it by the next street they have already changed subjects not thinking about it in the least But the sex addict is replaying that scene for the next 10 years. Okay. So our emphasis today is going to be on what are we talking about lust? What is lust? Lust is not a physical issue. Lust is a mental issue. You know, I got some, I went ahead and 
looked up some definitions. Uh, let's see. One place calls it a strong, a, de, a strong desire. Um, other places call it uh, a strong desire that forms fantasies. You know, what, wherever you look at it, it always comes back to what's between my ears. And my attitude towards what's between my ears. Now, Dave and I spend a lot of time talking about this. It's been tough, I think, at first for him to jump through certain of these ideas I had about lust. And we're going to talk about it in, a, in three sessions. Next session, we'll have kind of breakout. But the one after that, in how it works... Without being honest with ourselves, there's no way to identify lust. You know, what is lust? Lust is not, for me, an a the aberrant thought I get. I get aberrant thoughts. I just do. I get crazy thoughts. What can I tell you? I went and saw dog shit on the floor. And I had this thought to put it in my mouth. It was a horrible thought. I don't understand why I would get such a disgusting thought. I mean, it was blah. But I, I shared it with someone. I said, oh, what a horrible thought. Just blah, aberrant thought. And just chalk it off. But with a similar thought where I will see a woman walk down the street and she'll be fully clothed and I'll see her vagina and she's fully clothed. I'll see her vagina. That is not lust for me. That is the aberrant thought. A non-real thought. It just wasn't real. She's dressed. I can't see her vagina. Sometimes I see guys who are dressed having it with an erection. It's an aberrant thought. It has nothing to do with reality. It's a screwed up electronic impulse in my brain, just like a dream at night. It's some kind of chemical release that my particular body has. However, a sex addict begins to think that's real. So when this young woman, I take Zumba, and I'm the only guy with like 35 gals in this Zumba class. And when my instructresses, who are sharp gals, will come up to me, they'll pat me on the shoulder, they'll come, I get a thought, they want to have sex with me. I'm 71 years old. <laughs> These gorgeous thin beings want to have sex with me. I'm insane. 
But that's the first thought. That's not lust for me. If I build that thought into a fantasy, if I nurse it, if I purposely go for it, if I bring it up in the car later that afternoon purposely, if I especially will nurse it so I have an erection with it, that is lust. I don't want to make this too complicated. This, you know when you're lusting. You know it. But what is it? Why do people, first of all, keep relapsing? This relapsing is a fascinating concept. Does God love me because I haven't relapsed more than he loves a person who's relapsing? Hell no. But what is it? He gives us all the same gift. I've decided to take the gift every morning. I get on my knees, do the third step. I have decided to take the gift. Other guys decide not to take it each day. And what is it they're not willing to take? What is the gift? The gift is that I believe I have a disease. Most of you guys still don't believe you have a disease. You're still using a religious model. You still think you're bad getting good, not sick getting well. You still go into shame when you get an aberrant thought. Instead of saying, oh, there it is again, I'm nuts. My brain's damaged. I got a damaged brain. I've had it since I've been a kid. I was undressing my Sunday school teacher, picturing him having sex with his wife when I didn't even know what sex was. You can't tell me I don't have a defected brain. And I was so happy to find out that was the cause of my problem. You know, we're never supposed to say, that's not good for self-esteem. <laughs> to think I'm defected? Oh my, to think I'm a pervert? Oh God, heaven not. Don't call me a pervert. Don't say I'm defected and handicapped. Well, what the hell do I call myself? I had sexually abused my wife for 25 years. I had to have sex twice a day with her, except when she was menstruating. I had sex with 500 to 1,000 men, women, dogs. Had to masturbate almost every few hours. What the hell do you call it? And yes, I lied and I stole and I cheated and I did sinful behavior out of it. But you know what? Now that I'm sober, how come I'm not doing all that stuff? If I'm just a darn sinner, why? Because I'm not taking my, because I am taking my medicine each day, which happens to be spiritual medicine. I am taking spiritual medicine.
each day, and it gives me a daily reprieve. And I'm not the person I was, especially if I'm working my steps on my character defects. <coughs> I'm so glad I don't get passionate in these talks. You know? <laughs> I will ask in a room, time and again, because I do a lot of relapse workshops in Nashville. We'll go around the room and we'll get, let's say, 50 people at the meeting on Saturday morning. You get more people usually than we do, but we have about 50. And, but we got 43 meetings a week. <laughs> Hasn't he restored me to sanity beautifully? <laughs> This competitiveness has just totally disappeared in my life. <laughs> what do you sing about me with my character defects? The thing that I'm seeing that years ago I would never have seen that I was competitive. That's where a lot of my progress. My sponsor would say, first we don't know we're doing it. Then we finally get to know we do, we're doing it, and we do it anyway. And then we eventually don't have to do it. You know, that's the, the, the structure. And so this disease model is so integral. And I ask in these rooms, and I'll ask in Nashville in these relapse workshops I do, how many of you guys believe you really have a disease? And then, you know, it's like squeezing juice from a turnip. Most people in the program have been very successfully programmed by their churches and synagogues to believe that, you know, this is just sinful behavior. If only you would stop doing it and choose better and you have a choice to choose. God gave you that choice to choose. Well, they forget one thing. That my disease lives in my chooser. My disease has affected my chooser. It has damaged my chooser. And what happens in recovery when I take my medicine each day? Lo and behold, I have a moment in time where I can choose to use a tool or not. Whether it's a religious tool, whether it's a flipping a rubber band on my wrist to block a thought, whether it's a prayer, whatever it is. I get a moment in time that I can use my toolbox. Now, remember, if this is a disease and it is incurable, it's getting worse even while I'm getting weller. Like any other allergy. It's a physical allergy, the AA book says, accompanied by a mental obsession. 
So what does a physical allergy mean? It means if I take penicillin for years and years and have no problem with it, and suddenly I break out with a rash, excuse me, and I don't take it for the next 20 years, and I get into an automobile accident, and someone by accident gives me penicillin, I will not break out the way I originally did. I will break out with either anaphylactic shock, my eyes swell, my throat closes up, whatever. It has been building antibodies for that 20 years, armies to fight the antigens. Same thing with my program. I'm staying weller, but my disease is growing inside. Therefore, if I don't get bigger tools to beat down my ego each day, I'm not going to make it real well. And that's why in this program you can't stay stagnant. Just can't stay stagnant. I want to read to you some of the things that Roy talks about. Lust. Lust is not being able to say no. By the way, I still have, it's not as it was, but I still have a little problem if my wife requests sex. I have to be all but dead to say no. Just her request, I have to say yes. But I've become more aware of it, and matter of fact, I, I'm so ill that a sponsor of mine, I've been sponsoring for 25 years now, we're co-sponsors. And uh, he casually said, oh, my wife wanted sex today, and, um, but I had a cold. And I said, no, I don't want to give her a cold. I said, you mean you don't have sex with your wife when you have a cold? I mean, it was news to me. <laughs> my mind says well you're sleeping in the same bed with her anyway if she's going to get a cold she's going to get a cold and some months ago my wife requested sex to me I don't know what happened that she requested it I mean, miracles do happen every now and then and I was able to say not totally, no. I was able to say, honey, I'll take a rain check. Because I have a cold and I don't want to give it to you. I could have given her a million dollars. And I don't think she would have gotten as much out of it. She couldn't believe I said that to her. She mentioned it the next day. So go figure out these women. By the way, on that note, I want to say that this comes up a bit. As you'll notice, I free associate during this whole talk. But I had a sponsee, and he was, he was in the program seven years, and his wife kept saying to him, how do I know you're sober? How do I know you're sober? Nothing he said. And she always would say, how do I know you're sober? 
So one day, I was sober at that time, probably 20, 22 years. I went to my wife and I said, how do you know I'm sober? And I was stunned what she said. She said, I see you hitting your knees twice a day. I see you rushing off to meetings. And I overhear what you say to your sponsees on the phone. <laughs> In other words, she just knew it. How? Through my working the program. I didn't have to convince her or tell her, oh, I'm sober, I'm this, I'm that. You know, she's the one who has to get annoyed at me because we'll be watching television and I walk out of the room. Or I put my hand up. I, I use putting my hand up for me, tremendous amount of my help for me is to block the view. They say the uh, endorphins get triggered even from the retina of your eye. It's in your brain and the retina of your eye. Therefore, if I block the view, it helps me dramatically. We call it the essay salute in Nashville, but I, it's something that I had to discover early on in recovery. This I used to pick up hitchhikers to have sex with. And we, so what I would do is if I saw a speck on the road ahead, I would just go like this and drive and it blocked the view and it was amazing how easy it was for me. I'm telling you, this program's so simple, most people can't get it. You can't get it. You're expecting some sophisticated stuff. It comes down to blocking the view. So that I don't have to begin to lust. The first thought is on God. The second thought is on me. That was Jess's statement over and over. Jess was my sponsor for years until he fired me because we went into business together and I won't go into that. But for about 14 years he was my sponsor. And that's what he would say over and over. He was the first person to say in the program quite a while ago, they have it on a tape somewhere, I am lust free today. I am lust free today. I rather die today than go into active lust. And if you think I mean this on religious terms. You are wrong. Because to me, there is nothing wrong in lusting. We are not prohibitionists. We are not prohibitionists. We are not against people going to part, necessarily going to pornos. We don't go out marching saying, close the porno down, go, close the strip 
far down, close this, turn the TVs off, get rid of television. We are not prohibitionists. Because most people can handle lust. Most people can handle masturbation. Most people can handle an occasional affair. I can't. I'm allergic to it. Most people can drink alcohol. Many religions use alcohol in their services. I can't. I can't take one drink of alcohol. I was upset yesterday there was some red wine vinegar. I was afraid I got a little of it in. That's how worried I am about alcohol. I'm allergic to alcohol. I have a physical allergy accompanied by a mental obsession. Now, why do people keep relapsing? Because they never get sober. Because they have not followed the SA membership requirement. So most people never become real members of SA. It says in our membership requirement that we are, membership is based basically on a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. It's news to people. All they're hearing is, and become sexually sober. That's all they're interested in. I don't want to go down to the portos. I don't want to do this. I don't want to get stuck in another affair. I don't want to masturbate again. And this whole concept of a desire to stop lusting. And what is the word desire? The attitude Roy was talking about. An attitude. Most people want to control and enjoy lust. They believe they could get away with it. If they can, great. But to keep coming back to these rooms and not having a desire to stop lusting, statistically, you're always going to feel like an outsider looking in. This you're not becoming membership. And if we say the only requirement for SA membership is... Unlike in AA, where they say the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. You know, if we go to the preface of the essay book, the preface, the beginning, he says, this book, this book is for those who want to stop their sexually self-destructive thinking and behavior. Over and over again, he talks about the thinking first. I think I found one time he just talked about the acting out without saying thinking first. Now, most people could... See a beautiful gal and say, hey, I want some of that and play with idea for a bit and whatever. I can't do that successfully. I could do it, but not successfully. 
most men outgrow masturbation. They use it when their wives aren't around at times. They'll use it if they're totally isolated. They use it in a way for sexual release. But if they have other sexual release, they tend not to have to use it. I never outgrew masturbation. So, Roy's saying about lust, and let's read some of the few things, and we're going to kind of end on, on some of what Roy says. And it's all in the chapter he has on lust itself. Believe it or not, there's a whole chapter on lust. Lust, not being able to say no. Constantly being in dangerous sexual situations. Turning my head as if sex starved. Does that mean I can't notice a gal with her boobs hanging out with a tattoo on her breast? And it's cut down to her navel almost? Am I not going to notice it? Who are you kidding? But if I'm turning my head and I'm going back for more drinks and then keep replaying it, that's lust. I have a joke with my wife. We'll be walking down the mall and I'll say, thank God I'm a recovering sex addict and I didn't eat and then I'm blind on one eye so that I didn't have to notice that gal's giant bosoms. (laughs) I'm blind on one eye I couldn't miss that stuff but it's what do I do with it when it came in what is my attitude what is and what does Roy say and Dave brought this up He, he was having some printouts uh so I put it, put a downer on it for this particular one. But they were great things he had written in it. Um, lust is toxic for a sexaholic. Now, I get the dry heaves. I actually start vomiting. When I have taken in without purposely trying it even, I get the dry heaves. I have no doubt what I thought was a drug is really a poison for me. It's strychnine. I once was uh, looking for somebody in a, in a hospital I was working at and I was looking through the offices and my eyes met this guy who was a trigger for me, met his eyes and I immediately kept going And down the hall, I started to vomit. What it was, without even purposely trying, I had taken in that energy, that poison for me. This I'm allergic to this stuff. Now, you don't get to know you're allergic to it if you're masturbating all the time. Because you never, 
the endorphins are numbing out any rough reaction you're going to get. Or if you keep going back to it, you're not going to notice this. What else does he say? Attraction only to beautiful people. I spend a lot of time with, I sponsor a lot of people, and a lot of them are single guys, and I spend a lot of time kicking them out of the nest, trying to get them to date. Really, working on it. And that darn word comes up all the time. Oh, she, I had such chemistry for her. I said, she ain't the one. (laughs) You want the woman that God brings you, not the woman your chemistry brings you. Big difference. Erotic fantasies. Man, I wish you guys luck if you could handle it. I don't want it today. Use of erotic material, media. Now, this is the one I am just so powerless over helping people that I just don't know what to do anymore. Other than give it to God. Being addicted to the partner as I would be to a drug. Guys cannot see how addicted they are, how much in lust they are to their wives. They can't see it. Because they think it would show up in sexual ways, but that's not how it shows up. It shows up in dependency. Oh, my wife thinks I'm not doing this right. She thinks I'm not doing that. Oh, my God. She's not sure I'm I'm sober today. Oh, she might think I'm doing this. Oh, she thinks I might be doing that. That's lust. This disproportionate emotional need to please that other person. Not because God wants you to do the next, next right thing. Because you're afraid of her reaction. I didn't tell you the third article that just came out this month in SA. In the SA. Which people don't talk about. And it's been published this month. Is what about sex in marriage? We pretend in this fellowship that people aren't having sex all the time. We make believe this is a celibate fellowship. That everyone's abstinent. For a lot of abstinent people, we sure get a lot of babies being born. (laughs) And that subject doesn't come up. But I wrote about it. And one of the things I wrote about is how a guy will be dishonest with his wife. He will say yes when he means no. Because if he says no, he's worried he won't get laid that night. And I'm sorry for a lust word like laid. I know we shouldn't use the word laid. (laughs) But there is no better expression to describe what we as sex 
addicts distort that word of sexual intimacy by our hunger where we have to even lie to ourselves and to our wives so that we are guaranteed we might get some that night. Not that you will, but you might. When we were in our addiction, it wouldn't matter if our wives stood on their heads and spit wooden nickels. When they begged us, don't act out, don't go on pornography, stop going and spending money on those phone calls. Stop the, we didn't listen to one word they'd say. We sober up, we start shivering and shaking the minute they open their mouth. In Nashville, I, I use the expression, we, be, we turn into wimpets. <laughs> Guys who couldn't give a darn what their wives said. And what happens? They shiver and shake. And inside, they're getting rageful and resentful. And they act all cuddly and nice. And before you know it, they're back on the internet again. And our next talk is going to be about self-honesty, which will, as you're noticing, it's impossible for me to stay on time, but I'll try finishing up this. Um, Losing my identity in the partner. Okay. Wow, who would think that's lust? Obsession with the romantic. Look at that word again, obsession. That's a mind word. Lust is about the mind. The desire to make the other person lust. I still have a little of that problem because I'll go weightlifting. I'll say, Nancy, look at my muscle. Look at this muscle. She could care less. I was listening to someone on TV the other day about um, Anthony Weiner. And they had that gal with a big, you know, what a mouth, uh, uh, Ann Coulter. And she, she said, you think women really want to look at men's penises? You know, we get this whole distortion that women can't wait to look at our penises. <laughs> We're the only ones who like to look at our own penises. <laughs> women can't understand what that thing is. <laughs> Yeah, and this is one of the distortions we live with. We live with pornography in our repertoire of what we think women want and what they should do to us. We watch pornography and all this oral sex stuff. Do you realize how much they have to numb the woman's throat? You go to a doctor, you can't hardly put a tongue depressor down your throat. And you gag. And then we base everything on what we think our wives should do. And they always seem to fall short. 
we just live in this lust-like mental obsessive world. Roy calls it a not reality. What I'm going to do now is kind of switch it, let you all go to the bathroom, do what you need, come back, and then I'm going to open the mic so you all can talk about what I've just said, share what you want to share, and that will be our breakout meeting. Till okay? Thanks, Mark. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.